Hi. Hey. Welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. We're having Catholic voices on every week to talk about Catholic topics in the hopes of encouraging people to learn more about the Catholic faith and what we really believe from people who really believe it. And this week, I have a great episode for you. I'm joined by Dr. James Tonkowicz from Wyoming Catholic College to talk about his article, his ebook, How to Not Become Catholic in Nine Easy Steps. This is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek episode because I wrote a similar article as I was journeying into the Catholic Church, writing about how we can avoid becoming Catholic by avoiding certain things. It's, I think, a pretty fun episode, and I hope it's not too aggressive towards non-Catholics or too silly or too rude. This is the cordial Catholic, after all. I think it's pretty fun. We outline things you really shouldn't do if you don't want to become interested in the Catholic faith. And, hey, you might not become Catholic if you break these rules, but you will certainly get more educated about the Catholic Church. It's a great episode, and I think you should listen carefully, and I really think you should avoid breaking any of these rules. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Dr. James Tonkowicz. He holds a BA in philosophy from Bates College and an MDiv and a D-Min from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. A former Presbyterian pastor in Silicon Valley, Dr. Tonkowicz is a convert to the Catholic faith. He is the director of distance learning at Wyoming Catholic College, a commentator on the intersection of religion and public life, a regular contributor to the stream, and an author of a number of books, including The Liberty Threat, The Attack on Religious Freedom in America Today from St. Benedict Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tonkowicz. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. You know, when I first came across your article, I thought it was pretty funny because what happened to me was early on in my conversion journey, I wrote an article which was like yours called How to Not Become Catholic, A Convert's Guide. And what ended up happening to my article is that a student at Trinity Western University up here in Canada actually took that article and essentially plagiarized the whole thing and republished it in the student journal on campus, the student newspaper on campus. And a friend of mine who went there uh, sent me an email with a picture of this newspaper and said, uh, hey, isn't this your article? <laughs> And of course, when I found your article with a very similar title, which you had written years before I wrote my article, I was a little bit chagrined. Well, I didn't copy <laughs> yours exactly. I didn't outright plagiarize yours, but I thought it was pretty interesting uh, how similar both the articles were. Uh, yours and mine touched on very similar points. Well, as somebody said, it, it's copyrighted, which means if you're going to copy it, copy it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the the purpose, uh, the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast is because of this, uh, This, I guess it's an, an ebook and a series of articles also appeared in the Catholic Exchange, I think, that became this ebook. But you'd written about how to not become a Catholic, and it was kind of this tongue-in-cheek um, reflection on your own journey and, and how you got there and... and uh, maybe a word of warning to others on how to not make that same uh, mistake, in air quotes, as as you made. So I was hoping to go through this. Uh, you have nine rules. We can try and get through all of them if we can, um, because they're, they're really entertaining and they're really interesting. And I really like this approach to, um, uh, to how to not become Catholic. So why don't you go through the, uh, the first rule on, so, so you, you follow this rule in order to not become Catholic. Right. The first rule is assume all Catholics are idiots. Uh, <laughs> and you're not, you're not allowed to make exceptions for John Paul II or for, uh, you know, George Weigel or for Richard John Newhouse. It just, it has to be blanket across the boards. Um, and, uh, 
if it, it, it just seems to me it's it, it's a slippery slope to go from some Catholics are are, are some Catholics are not idiots to there are many Catholics who are not idiots to the majority of Catholics I have to admit are probably not idiots to uh, bless me Father for I have sinned I, you know it's just this sort of this this uh, slippery slope uh, Fulton Sheehan uh, someone was telling me. Well, somebody on my podcast, uh, the uh, After Dinner Scholar, was telling me just the other day that Fulton Sheehan uh, commented that a lot of people hate the Catholic Church, but of those who hate the Catholic Church, most of them hate what they think is the Catholic Church, and only a tiny minority hate uh, the actual Catholic Church. So if you if you keep Catholic thinking and Catholic thinkers at at arm's distance you're less likely to say, well, you know, actually these people have a point. And one of the things that happened in my life is uh, I was uh, I was the uh, managing editor of Chuck Colson's uh, daily uh, radio commentary, Breakpoint. And because I knew Chuck, I got to know some of his friends who included Catholic uh, thinkers such as uh, Michael Novak and Jay Bushyshevsky and, uh, and others who really impressed me, Robert George from Princeton. And then I served as president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy. And my board members included Richard John Newhouse and Michael Novak and George Weigel and uh, Mary Ellen Bork and, and Jay Bushyshevsky. So I, you know, I got to know these very pious, very uh, godly Catholic men and women who were most certainly and absolutely not idiots. They were really scary smart. And uh, if you want to avoid being a Catholic, you do your best to avoid those kinds of people and just assume that all Catholics are uh, are uninformed and uh, not terribly bright. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like you said, that's easy to do. But as soon as you begin to open up maybe your social circle, your circle of religious acquaintances or, or associates, uh, yeah, that becomes that becomes interesting. So what's your rule number two? Well, rule number two goes along with it, which is get all your information about the Catholic Church secondhand. Uh, The last thing you want to do is sit down with a thoughtful, uh, intellectual Catholic who really knows his faith and who's really living his faith or her faith and get the information from there or open up the uh, Catholic catechism and start getting your information from there. Uh, what you want to do is talk to people who are already hostile to the Catholic Church and get your information from them. And that could include, uh, well, I, gosh, I had an encounter with a, uh, with a trained theologian. He's a PhD in theology, teaches theology. Uh, and he really had to have gone out of his way to be so grossly ignorant about the Catholic Church. And he had a huge prejudice against the Catholic Church. And it was based on, uh, from my point of view, nonsense. He said, I I expect no more out of reading a Catholic author than I do out of reading a Mormon author. I was like, really? Is that, how does that make sense? (laughs) Um, And so somebody who's willfully ignorant of the church is a great source of information. Uh, Somebody who will, will say, well, I used to be a Catholic, but now I'm a Christian meaning I'm now an evangelical. Uh, That's a great source of information about the Catholic Church if you want to avoid the church because they don't know what they're talking about and they're hostile toward the church. And then the other is uh, uh, badly formed priests uh, and religious, Uh, people who went to seminary in the groovy days of uh, the 70s in what uh, George Wilde calls the post-Vatican II silly season. Uh, a lot of those are, they're still around, they're getting older and they're dying out, but they're still around and you can get all sorts of misinformation uh, about the church from uh, from folks like that who have not left the church, but dissent on uh, many critical and crucial issues. But, yeah, the one thing that I would, the, that I would most avoid, tell people to avoid is the catechism. Uh, the catechism is a book that well, uh, Dr. Mark Knoll, the uh, uh, evangelical church historian, 
uh, says that if, you know, two-thirds of the catechism, any evangelical would agree with in a second. And what's left, the other third, is something that any evangelical would look at and find it, find it necessary to ponder. Uh, it's such a brilliantly written and, uh, I don't want to say entertaining, but just it, it, the, the catechism pulls you in. It's just not a lot of data. It's very pastoral uh, and very encouraging. So you want to definitely avoid that. Find all of your information out secondhand uh, from uh, ex-Catholics, from disgruntled uh, priests and nuns, or, but don't go to the source. Don't talk to the people who really know. <laughs> so just like uh, the problem of meeting intelligent Catholics who know, uh, who know their faith, getting your information from you know, actual Catholic sources <laughs> also becomes a dangerous thing, right? Right. Well, I mean, and you see that in the evangelical world as well. You say you say to somebody, hey, well, have you read the Bible? Uh, no, but I saw the movie once. Well, yeah, okay, that, that's <laughs> that's the idea. Have you, have you read about the Catholic? Have you, have you read Catholic sources about what the Catholic Church teaches? Well, no, but I had a neighbor and he says the Catholics believe, you know, that when you die, you become an angel. The Catholics believe, you know, good dogs go to heaven or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but that's a, that's a good source of information if you want to avoid the church. I I laughed out loud reading uh, your ebook of this. Uh, you talk about getting information from Father Star Child or Sister Sunbeam, <laughs> which is which is which is just just uh, very uh, eloquent eloquently put. Right, that's just in, indicative of this uh, post Vatican II time in the church. Which for listeners who don't really understand uh, what happened at Vatican II. Um, do do you want to maybe take a little shot at explaining why there was such poor formation, maybe, and and why why getting your information from people who are ex Catholics who who were formed in this period of time, why that information can be just so um, absurd sometimes? Well, you you had you had a hermeneutic of discontinuity. In other words, people came to the Vatican II documents and say, "Aha, there's a break in history here." the bad old days before Vatican II, the great new days ahead of us after Vatican II. And by what by that they meant really the pro Protestantization of much of Catholicism, uh, the liberal Protestantization of much of Catholicism. And that was never the intent. Uh, the Catholic Church believes in a hermeneutic of continuity that what went on before Vatican II is not materially different from after Vatican II. The Vatican II sought to, tried to answer the question, how do we present the ancient faith in a new environment? And that's an important question for every generation to ask. Uh, it didn't say, let's throw out the ancient faith and come up with something we cooked up uh, last week. <laughs> so if you, want, if you want to avoid becoming Catholic, uh, get your information from people who were are, who are raised and formed following Vatican II, these ex-Catholics, these maybe ex-priests who didn't really, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, learn the faith very well themselves and then left the faith. If you, if you want to avoid being Catholic, get your information from them. But if you, you know, be careful of getting it from the actual source, right? Exactly. How about exactly. your rule number three? Uh, well, avoid being uh, deep in history. Deep in history is a phrase from a uh, blessed uh, John Henry Newman, uh, who became a Catholic in the uh, mid-1800s, mid had been a, an important, pr very prominent Anglo-Catholic uh, Anglo thinker, then became a Catholic. Um, for most evangelicals, certainly it's been my experience. Well, basically, the adage from Henry Ford, history is bunk. Um, and I find that among far too many of my Protestant friends, that they don't care about history. You know, if you go to a church that was planted in 2014 and you're in a denomination that was founded in 1973, well, why do you care what happened in the 14th century? Yet it's, it's church history uh, that, that formed us, that, that uh, made us who we are. If you look at the Reformation and simply see it as a uh, a great spiritual re renewal, which on some levels it was. It's easy to then avoid the history of the Reformation, 
which was the Reformation or the history of princes managing to subjugate their church, their the churches in their countries, whether it was Henry VIII or really Elizabeth II, or Elizabeth I did the job of subjecting the church to the crown. Uh, all over uh, northern Germany, the same thing happened, and uh, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of greed and political. Uh, machinations that went along with, oh, I think I'll become a Protestant now. And so if you avoid reading all that history, history both from a Protestant point of view and a Catholic point of view, which is only a fair fair way to read history, going back to the original sources, um, uh, there's a lot of information that you won't have and much of it sits on the Catholic side and says, well, you know, Catholicism is not nearly as bad as you, uh, as you might have thought. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, the abuses that uh, drove Luther to nail the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg uh, uh, Cathedral door, um, those abuses were well known within the Catholic Church. And there were Catholics working very hard to root out those abuses. And as a result of the Reformation, in fact, the Council of Trent came together, and even though they never quite finished their work, uh, nonetheless, they created a synthesis of of doctrine and uh, practice uh, that lasted for uh, over 400 years. You know, when I was uh, making my own journey into the Catholic Church, I had already begun to pray the daily office, which is a a, a, a prayer of the Catholic Church. This this ancient form of prayer, and one of the one of the psalms that they regularly pray talk about uh, don't trust in horses and don't trust in princes and your own strength, and that line don't trust in princes kept echoing in my head um, for some reason, and a, a, a couple weeks later after. Um, reflecting on that, thinking about that, I was reading a, a very Protestant, very anti-Catholic history of the Reformation, and it it talked about it, painted this picture of the early reformers essentially shopping around their religion to the different European princes, and and that psalm echoed back in my head about don't trust in princes. I I was I was getting in trouble myself in my journey to the Catholic Church when I began to read that history and realized that you know kind of in a sense what those reformers were doing was was literally the opposite of what the psalmist tells us uh, uh, to do. Yeah, well, and and what the what the princes were doing was what princes have, had wanted to do for years, which is to make the church uh, uh, an agency of the government. And make the ministers government employees, which is precisely what they did. Right. So if you want to, again, here's your rule number three. If you want to avoid becoming Catholic, keep keep the keep that history of the Reformation, keep that church history kind of at arm's length. Because as you're saying, and as I found out as well, once you begin to read a bit about church history, a lot of those may be things that you thought you knew um, or maybe were ignorant of and, and, and blissfully ignorant of, uh, begin to kind of unwind. Yeah, well, and that leads to rule number four, which is don't read the church fathers. <laughs> you, you want to avoid those people. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the reading the, uh, the Liturgy of the Hours, and I did the same thing. I started reading the Liturgy of the Hours uh, several years before I became reading it, praying the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, several years before I became Catholic, and here's how it came about. The late Methodist theologian uh, Thomas Oden began his theological career as one of the uh, very revisionist firebrands within the United Methodist Church, and he was at uh, uh, Drew Divinity School. And, uh, and Tom, who was you know, way out there on the left theologically, for some reason started reading the Church Fathers. As my good Baptist friends would say, he got saved. <laughs> <laughs> he got saved reading the Church Fathers and uh, became uh, a, you know, a, a very orthodox United Methodist firebrand. And uh, uh, 
Tom was on my board when I was at the uh, Institute on Religion and Democracy, and he was holding this book in his hand that sort of looked like a Bible, and it had ribbons coming out of it, but it really wasn't, it clearly wasn't a Bible. And I kind of looked at it, and he goes, oh, it's the Liturgy of the Hours. I pray them every, uh, every day. I said, hmm. So I went around the corner uh, to the uh, Catholic Information Center uh, on K Street in Washington, D.C., uh, around the corner from my office, and I bought, I bought the, the, the Liturgy of the Hours and started praying them at that point. And one of the things that happens in the Liturgy of the Hours is many of the readings are taken from the Church Fathers. And you start getting a sense of the richness of the thinking within the Church in the early centuries of Christianity, really up to about, I guess, about uh, the 6th or 7th century uh, are the fathers. And um, they are absolutely brilliant uh, and absolutely wonderful. Uh, I, had, I had an odd situation where uh, I suggested to a small group when we were uh, at the Presbyterian Church that we read St. Athanasius's book on the Incarnation as a lead up to Christmas. And uh, somebody said, St. Athanasius, isn't he Catholic? It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you know, it, yeah, kind of everybody was in the second century. You know, it's, uh, it's sort of anachronistic uh, to talk in those terms. But many evangelicals do. Uh, although a friend of mine recently sent me an article, uh, a Presbyterian friend, about how evangelicals should really start reading the Church Fathers. And it's like, oh, dear, <laughs> you haven't read my warnings, have you? <laughs> oh, well, this was a route for me as well. And it is for so many people, the, the church fathers, because what what happens? What happened to you once you began to read the church fathers? And maybe give us a little bit of an outline of who these early church fathers were. Well, these were the these were the these were the folks who took took over uh, after the apostles uh, were killed and St. John died. Uh, these were the leaders of the church. They were, uh, they were bishops. They were theologians. They were the ones to whom God entrusted defining the faith. Uh, who is Jesus? Uh, well, he's God and man. Well, what does that mean? Uh, what, is, what is communion? Uh, well, it's bread, it's bread and wine. Well, yeah, but what happens? What does that mean? Uh, they were the source of the original works on religious liberty in the Roman Empire. They worked on the nature of the Trinity. Uh, St. Augustine wrote on the Trinity. St. Augustine wrote on the relationship between church and state in the city of God. Uh, they, uh, you know, it was like the early philosophers, uh, even the, the, the uh, it, it seems to me amazing that the, um, pre-Socratic philosophers considered every question of philosophy that we can still consider today, or at least the vast majority. And in the same way, the church fathers had all these theological questions of theological problems and debates, and they worked out uh, not so much systems of theology, but ways of thinking about, uh, about theological questions, ways of thinking about the doctrines of the Christian church. They formulated the doctrines uh, from the scriptures and from what they had learned uh, through the apostolic tradition. And, uh, and they include people like, well, like Augustine and uh, uh, John Chrysostom and Polycarp and Ignatius and Clement of Rome and Clement of Alexandria and uh, on and on. So you mentioned, and, and I found the same thing, that we, we as Protestants read a bit about a bit of the Church Fathers. I've, I've read uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation. Um, um, you know, you read some Augustine, you read uh, maybe some uh, some St. Francis, or even maybe some Augustine, uh, or sorry, even some Aquinas, maybe. Um, but what happens when you read, like, the Anti-Nicene Fathers, these, these early, early Church Fathers, um, as a whole, what kind of picture does that give you of the, the early church that might be a bit alarming if you aren't Catholic? Well, you, you get the picture of a church united under bishops, for one thing. Uh, I, I came out of seminary believing that, well, any polity, any church government polity 
that works works and just use it and uh, that's the way they did it that's the way Paul did it that's the way we should do it um, and then after a while I, I I became Presbyterian and said congregational polity with that kind of atomization of churches can't possibly be a biblical polity and uh, and then I realized that right out of the gate the churches everywhere had bishops presbyters or priests and deacons and the kind of uh, the kind of polity you see within the uh, the Catholic Church and within the Orthodox churches uh, emerged if, if, if that's not what the, the Apostles put there boy it emerged awfully quickly <laughs> um, and uh, that was certainly something that that really impressed me about the church fathers so there's number four. Let's just do a quick recap. So if you want to avoid becoming Catholic, assume you say, <laughs> I love this, that all Catholics are idiots. Don't meet any Catholics who seem to know what they're talking about. Uh, rule number two, get all your information about the Catholic faith secondhand. So ex-Catholic Christians are a good source, you say. People who weren't maybe well-formed in their own faith. And um, there are a lot of these kinds of people, unfortunately, in the uh, Protestant world or, I guess, non-Christian, non-Catholic world. Uh, rule number three, avoid being deep in history. So, goodness gracious, don't read the history of the church. Uh, rule number four, don't read the church fathers. That is that is certainly a gateway for far too many pe people. <laughs> uh, how about rule number five for uh, avoiding becoming Catholic? Well, it, it, rule number five is affirm the great tradition. But don't ask what's included in the great tradition. I had a conversation with a, a, a Protestant pastor friend of mine, and uh, well, let's see. Let me let me let me step back. Um, when Francis Beckwith, uh, who had be, who was the at the time was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society, became a Catholic again, he he reverted to the Catholic Church. He went to confession and went to mass. Um, uh, having been brought up in the church. There was a blog entry I read that, that was very kind to Francis Beckwith, written by a, a Presbyterian, a Reformed theologian. And uh, he, it said something like, as far, he said something like, as far as I'm concerned, as long as the uh, creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed, and the uh, Apostles' Creed, the definition of, of, of Chalcedon, as long as these things continue to be expressions of biblical truth, we can keep saying them, and, or, or words to that effect. And I was like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> Who would suddenly decide that the Nicene Creed isn't biblical? Um, and why? And what authority would they have to do so? Um, and I was kind of pressing a, a, a pastor friend of mine on this. And he said, well, you know, you need to go back, you know, who, you know, who, how, do, how do we know who Jesus is, what Jesus is? Well, we gotta, we've got to go back to the great tradition and affirm the great tradition, by which he meant the Christology of the great tradition. He wants, he wants the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and the definition of Chalcedon and so on and so forth. Uh, he wants against the Arians and against the Pelagians. He wants that. And so let's affirm the great tradition. What he doesn't know is what else is in the great tradition, mm. uh, which is things like the place of Mary in the economy of salvation, which is things like the, the actual true real presence uh, of Christ in the sacrament. That this is his body. This is his blood. It's not spiritually so or so if you believe it by faith or some other real presence that's sort of a, a, what I've been calling the fake real presence. That's the real, real presence. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you don't want that. You, you don't want the idea of the communion of saints uh, being we pray to the saints because they pray to God for us. And they, you know, that they, they are as alive in the church and as active in the church as we are. Uh, all that is in the great tradition. So while you want to affirm the great tradition, uh, that which has always been believed everywhere and by all, you don't want to dig too deeply into what the great tradition is all about. 
because you're going to find some very Catholic things uh, right there. I was going to say down. Once you dig, you're going to find some Catholic things. You don't have to dig very far. They're right there on the surface. <laughs> That's it, right? And, you know, this is a kind of a fascination for me because you see a lot more um, movement. And I was discussing with a friend recently, who uh, a friend who became an Eastern Orthodox. For a lot of the same reasons, I became Catholic. Uh, he was in a church... Um, evangelical, non-denominational, very emergent kind of church movement that, and I was in, in a similar place. Th these these churches, these emergent churches, especially these non-denominational churches, are looking for uh, tradition. They're they're moving back to like dig into these ancient traditions. I've even I've even seen or heard of some of these churches um, calling their communion Eucharist, but. But they aren't there. It's a it's a surface level dig, right? Because like you're saying, if you you can affirm the great tradition, but if you actually look what's in the great tradition and 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 dig below the surface, well, you can you can call it the Eucharist. But we have we have Justin Martyr uh, in in 100 A.D. Uh, clearly explaining that the Eucharist is believed to be the actual body and, and blood of of Jesus. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that that. that... I've lost touch with that sort of thing, but there were emergent churches and probably still are that have rediscovered candles and have, redis <laughs> and have rediscovered icons. And, uh, yeah, um, well, keep, keep digging friends because you won't be an emerging church. You'll, you'll be emerging into the Catholic church yeah, sooner re or later. Re-emerging um, re or re-reuniting. <laughs> re you know, and I, I don't mean to sound dis disparaging to these movements either. It's an interesting and it's an it's a very uh, maybe you might say a, a Holy Spirit driven uh, urge to dig into that deep tradition. Uh, it just strikes me as funny. And, and the way you put it in this article, don't ask too many questions about the great tradition. Uh, I, I find that really amusing. But it is. It's, it's this urge to dig into the tradition, but don't dig too deeply because, you know, like like myself and like yourself, you might end up. Uh, you know, sealing the deal and becoming Catholic, going all the way in. Yeah, I'm just cherry pick it. Yeah. If you if, if you just cherry pick it, you're going to be okay. But uh, but now you're saying cherry pick the great tradition, and it's also a little bit unusual that uh, you know this Protestant friend of mine. He said we we've got to go back to the great tradition and to the creeds and hold on to those things uh, in order to maintain orthodoxy today. And I, I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. Mr. Sola Scriptura, uh, <laughs> why, why are why are you now talking about the authority of the church and the authority of tradition? And there's, you know, there's that. I think that I think that be, that, that becomes a difficulty. <laughs> I had a pastor friend. Uh, well, the pastor of of the church that I ended up leaving to become Catholic, who was a good good friend of mine used to pepper his uh, his sermons with, uh, with with very Catholic quotations, some from popes, some from uh, well-known saints. And he was, I, I don't know, I think he was trying to appeal to me, my, my wife and I, who were, who were, he knew we were on the edges of, of becoming Catholic. But I thought, oh, just, just read a bit more from that author, and maybe you'll, you'll come with us on this journey. Well, when I was a pastor uh, out in Silicon Valley, I was not a fan of Reformation Sunday. I didn't do Reformation Sunday. I did All Saints. Rather than expositing the scripture, which was my usual way of preaching, uh, on All Saints, I would tell three saints stories. And I had a rule. Uh, one of the saints, at least, would be a woman. And one, at least, would be pre-Reformation. Because as far as I was concerned, everybody pre-Reformation uh, is... is they belong to all of us. You know, they're, they're saints and examples for all of us. And uh, that shocked certain people within my congregation, but also it put me in touch with uh, pre-Reformation saints and uh, saints that, uh, people like Teresa of Avila, that, uh, it, you know, I was, I was breaking the rule about not going too deeply into history. <laughs> You're living a bit dangerously. Yeah, I lived. Yes, I too like to live dangerously. <laughs> so, rule number five: affirm the great tradition, but don't ask what's included in the great tradition. Don't dig too deeply, unless you want to become Catholic. How about rule number six? Well, rule number six and rule number seven go together. They they have to do with schism. 
Uh, if you're an evangelical, ignore the sin of schism. You know, it's just simply not unusual for somebody to become disgruntled with the church they're attending and the next Sunday decide they're going to plant their own church uh, or a pastor to become disgruntled with his congregation and go down the street and plant a new church. And I know lots of stories about that sort of thing happening, but I never within the evangelical world heard it called schism. It's not what it was called. They just, they might be called sheep stealing. It <laughs> might be called not very nice. Uh, it might be called by some choice and more piquant words, but you know, it was, it's the typical thing that people did. You went out and you started another church. There was never any sense that this was a, this was schism and this was a bad thing. This was sort of an outgrowth of, uh, of, you know, different gifts, different uh, abilities and the Holy spirit leading me to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, and yet, Schism has always been uh, considered a great sin within the church. At the Reformation, you essentially had the opening of the free market on religion. And, uh, you know, there are more than 25,000 Protestant denominations today and countless churches that don't fit into any denomination. If that's, that's not what Jesus meant when he prayed in John 17, that they would be one father, even as you and I are one. That is not what he was talking about. It was not, he was not talking about a oneness that's sort of vague and ethereal rather than an actual oneness, a true oneness. And so uh, schism is, and certainly the sin of schism is just not in the evangelical vocabulary. And one way to avoid becoming a Catholic is if you're an evangelical, just ignore that schism is a sin and just, don't worry about it at all. Uh, now, for the mainline Protestants, which is rule number seven, if you're a Protestant mainline person, you want to assume schism is somebody else's sin. Uh, <laughs> when I was at the, uh, the Institute on Religion and Democracy, I was in the Presbyterian Church in America. And the Presbyterian Church USA guys who didn't like the, the Institute on Religion and uh, 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 the Institute on Religion and Democracy and therefore didn't like me, even though they'd never met me, kept calling me a schismatic Presbyterian. And I heard that. And I said, I've been called a lot of things over the course of my life, but that is the dumbest thing anybody's ever called me. Uh, a schismatic Presbyterian in, in, in a church that's in schism from the Church of England, which is in schism from the Church of Rome. Well, you know, what does that even mean? Um I had a I had a, a Methodist uh, friend who was arguing very hard that uh, evangelical and Orthodox Methodists should never, you know, create the form of uh, a schism against the United Methodist Church, and yet the United Methodist Church is in schism from the Church of England, which is in schism from the uh, from the Catholic Church, um, uh, Episcopal bishops. You know, oh, heresy or schism is a much worse sin than heresy. So you can't leave the church. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Why aren't you going back to Rome if schism is such a horrible sin? And of course, they're not. Uh, so I think within Protestant churches, mainline churches, uh, you want to talk about schism as somebody else's sin, but not look in the mirror. <laughs> the truth of the matter is Protestantism is in schism from the Catholic Church. Now, if you think that's a, you may think that's a good thing. You may think uh, that's a wonderful thing, but it is a schism. Uh, and if you want to talk about reuniting and being out of schism and being in communion, um, you kind of got to go back to the Catholic Church, um, or you're, you know, you're just calling. You're just saying somebody else's sin is, of schism is bad. My sin of schism is perfectly legitimate. You know, it goes with uh, the earlier rules of not reading church history and not reading the early church fathers, because you, you have as a as an evangelical, as a mainline Protestant, you have this idea that the church was never this unified, whole, complete, one church. Um, and therefore, th these schisms aren't a big deal, because we never were really this one united church uh, altogether. Um, 
under the authority of the bishops um, and whatnot. But once you dig into that history and read the early church fathers and read the history of the church throughout time, you become you begin to recognize that, wait, well, the Catholic Church was the one church for quite a long time and still maintains uh, that that claim, right? Other churches historically have been in schism, have broken off from that one Catholic Church, right? And, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was fascinated to, again, find this Carl Truman quote. This this one quotation, which you've included in your in your um, your ebook here, was also instrumental. I know in the uh, conversion of of Francis Beckwith, you mentioned earlier, and I came across this quote as well, and you've come across it as well, and, and included it in here. This is the, the the question that that as an evangelical, as a non denominational non denominational evangelical, I had to ask myself um, this question that that uh, that Carl Truman poses. Do you want to read it for us? Sure. Uh, Truman, who uh, uh, this says is he's at Westminster Seminary. He's left. He's at uh, Grove City College, I believe. Uh, but Carl Truman said, every year I tell my Reformation history class that Roman Catholicism is, at least in the West, the default position. Rome has a better claim to historical continuity and institutional unity than any Protestant denomination, let alone all the strange hybrid, uh, let alone the strange hybrid that it is evangelicalism. In the light of these facts, therefore, we need good, solid reasons for not being Catholic. Not being Catholic should, in other words, be a positive act of will and commitment, something we need to get out of bed, determined to do each and every day. Uh, and uh, after quoting that, my, my comment is, why I wonder would anyone get out of bed determined to continue in schism? <laughs> um, Truman is an interesting guy. I probably should read more things that he's written. Um, and uh, I keep scratching my head, wondering how long it's going to take him to become a Catholic. Um, <laughs> but um, he's talking about doing something very self-consciously. People in the church aren't thinking in those terms. They, they're thinking, well, you know, I grew up Baptist, so here I am. I, I think of, I think of my uh, many former Episcopalian, now Anglican friends. And, you know, I wish them a lot of goodwill. I, they have my prayers in their project of a, a strong, beautiful Anglican church within America. And there are many beautiful Anglican churches that have either come out of the Episcopal Church or have been planted uh, over the last number of years. But I, I just scratch my head and say, look, you can have Anglican right Catholicism. <laughs> come on in. Come on in. Um, and... Uh, I think that there is, it, it, it's too big a leap in the thinking of, uh, I think, many ministers, but also the vast majority of lay people who are not consciously thinking anything like uh, what, what Truman is thinking, um, who's not, who aren't, who wouldn't even under the, understand the question of why do you remain in schism when you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, Carl Truman is is somebody who's thinking, who's obviously thinking about this, intentionally thinking about this. But like you say, uh, part of the reason these these two rules exist are because once you begin to think about this, this schism, you really have to face that down. So best just kind of ignore where your church came from. Um, don't dig into the history. Don't dig into the church fathers. Uh, ignore the, the problem that that. You know, what Jesus prayed for is not the church we have right now. Ig ignore that great big problem, right? Mm -hmm. At one point in my journey into the Catholic Church, I, I posted something on Facebook, which usually is a mistake to post anything on, on Facebook. But I posted something about, and I can't remember the context, but my question was, is, is this um, moral issue or the fact that, or, or, or schism, a bigger problem. I, I was kind of posing this question of these two, these two evils, which is a bigger evil. And I was, I was jumped on because all of my evangelical friends were like, well, of course this moral issue is a bigger issue. What, what is, what's this schism? What's this, uh, you know, church unity? What, it isn't even on the, the radar. 
Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, the, the, whatever issue I was talking about in juxtaposition, it wasn't even something that Jesus even prayed about in the Bible. It wasn't even an issue for any of the um, the writers of the epistles. Uh, it was nowhere on the church radar. But everybody in my evangelical orbit saw that as a much bigger issue than the unity of the church, something that Christ and the apostles actually wrote and spoke about, right? I found that very interesting. Obviously, moral moral issues are very important, but I think if you read the scripture fairly, and particularly if you read uh, Jesus' prayer uh, in John 17, uh, that the unity of the church is, is a moral issue, uh, and you need to take that seriously as well. Yeah, and you know what? It's interesting. So once you begin, once you begin thinking about that, right? Your your rule six and seven here. Once you begin thinking about that, you kind of make your way. Either what Carl Truman poses, uh, an, an, a willing, an intentional avoidance of reuniting with the Catholic Church, or you have to kind of just ignore this 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 schism somehow, right? And uh, it's someone else's problem. Right. So, so the the best rule, if you don't want to become a Catholic, is just don't think about it. <laughs> don't mention the schism. <laughs> don't mention schism. Exactly. How about rule number eight? Rule number eight is to believe that the Catholic Church and the Bible don't mix. I particularly, um, I think of one gentleman in particular, uh, wonderful Christian guy who I knew uh, at, a, at our Presbyterian church in Virginia, uh, elderly gentleman. Uh, ended up, I think he ended up becoming, it was, I think he ended up being ordained as one of the, uh, uh, the lay elders within the congregation, the ruling, uh, ruling elders, uh, said, I grew up Catholic and we were encouraged not to read the Bible and we didn't own a Bible in our house. And that's the way the priest wanted it. And, uh, and, and that's very sad. That's very sad, because particularly because he grew up in an era, or just after an era, when uh, the popes, beginning with Benedict the Fifteenth, were doing everything to encourage Catholic people to read the Bible. Uh, Benedict the Fifteenth helped uh, found a Catholic organization that. I have, I'm afraid I no longer remember. Oh, the, I heard this. It's the Society of St. Jerome. Well, the Society of St. Jerome was the Catholic equivalent of the Gideons, giving the Bible out to people, putting them in places where people would see them and read them. Uh, there was a strong, strong desire uh, within, the, within the church to get people reading the Bible. Now, why that didn't translate into this parish and that parish and Father so-and-so, I don't really know. Uh, but uh, so many Catholics have the impression, or so many former Catholics have the impression, actually so many current Catholics have the impression that the church doesn't want them reading the Bible. And that's simply not true, and that has never been true. Uh, the uh, we, met, we talked about reading the, the, the Liturgy of the Hours and praying the Liturgy of the Hours. What are we doing? We're praying the Scriptures over and over and over again and reading the scriptures over and over again. And uh, at a Catholic church on any given Sunday, on any given weekday, there's more scripture read than in probably 98% of uh, Protestant churches. Uh, you know, we, we, we read, we have an Old Testament reading. We have a, a Psalm. We have a New Testament, re a, an epistle reading, and then the gospel reading. And uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of Bible for one for one service. Uh, and uh, I love the uh, the Easter Vigil, where after the uh, after the candle is lit and brought in, we all sit down, and we have what is it nine scripture readings before the gospel, <laughs> uh, going through the history of uh, of salvation. Uh, anyway, but. The rumor is out there that Catholics don't read the Bible. The church doesn't want people to read the Bible um, and uh, take that secondhand information and run with it uh, and, and assume that the, the Catholic church doesn't ha isn't interested in the Bible. Uh, the other is with regard to this is the, uh, uh, the idea that the Catholic church added books to the Bible. 
we went to uh, mass once with uh, with our niece, and she was appalled that I I think something was read from the book of Maccabee, Maccabees. And how did the church add books to the Bible? Uh, not realizing, of course, that for fifteen hundred years all those books were in the Bible, and it was the Protestant Reformation that managed to grab a few and yank them out because they were not sufficiently biblical to be in the Bible, which is kind of a strange circular reasoning. <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, Scott Hahn, a famous convert who's uh, who wrote about the, the shock he felt when he went to his first Catholic Mass and, and how much Bible was, was read. And I know I... I felt the same thing when I encountered the Liturgy of the Hours, which essentially is is you're just reading sections of the Bible, these different prayers out of the Psalms and uh, different readings. There's there's so much Bible in the Catholic Church, and yeah, like you said, it might not translate to the parishes very well sometimes, and that's something that we certainly have to improve. But the Church itself, the teachings of the Church encourage the Bible being read, even if we don't follow those those teachings very well. The church itself gives us the Bible over and over again to to read. So a good way to avoid, you say, becoming Catholic is just to believe that the Catholic Church doesn't like the Bible. They don't mix, right? St. Jerome famously said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. And... Uh, St. Jerome is a big deal in the Catholic Church, and uh, pe- people through the centuries have t- taken those words very seriously. How about your rule, your your final rule, maybe one of my favorite rules here, rule number nine? Uh, that is, keep insisting that Catholicism is a grace-free works religion. And, uh, yeah, a Presbyterian friend of mine, said his, his wife had been raised as a Catholic, said, my wife came from a church that there was no grace at all in it. It was all about works. And uh, I knew someone who had left the church where he was one of the elders. Uh, and why did they leave? They, because they said, well, that's just, there's no grace in that church. It's all about works. I was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, the Westminster Confession certainly affirms grace uh, as the, the primary thing. This is our salvation is God's work, not ours. Um, but so does the Catholic catechism. Uh, in fact, uh, there are parts of the Catholic catechism that sound eerily familiar to anybody who would know, uh, knows the Westminster Confession of Faith. Our justification, says the catechism, comes from the grace of God. Grace is favor, the free and unreserved help that God gives us to respond to his call and become children of God, adopted sons, partakers of divine nature and of eternal life. Well, you know, maybe you could object to, uh, well, I don't know what you could object to in that quote, uh, if you were were a a, a good reformed theologian as I was for a long time. Um, There's no question that the Catholic Church uh, is about grace and constantly uh, runs on grace, uh, and yet you, you get these these two very odd uh, critiques of Catholicism. One that Catholics don't care about holiness because they do bad things; they just run to confession and everything's okay. And two, that it's all works oriented; that you have to work, work, work all the time, and you have to go to mass, and you have to go to the holy days of obligation, you have to fast during Lent, and, and not realizing that these th- two things are mutually exclusive, they're not the same. Uh, you can't ha- you can't hold them both at the same time, uh, and that the Catholic Church talks an enormous amount about grace, and uh, you know it's there and once uh, well, there all over the the Catechism. It's in so many encyclicals, uh, and one of the problems that I found as a Protestant minister is the people who are grace, 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 grace. And you'd say to them, well, what about doing this, that, and the other thing? Oh, no, don't talk to me about it. That's the law. That's the law. And so you have to convince people that they actually have to behave properly uh, in order to live a Christian life, rather than saying everything's just grace. I don't have to worry about 
being faithful to my wife, not lying, not uh, uh, not going to strip clubs or whatever it is. Uh, and uh, you, there's a great deal of difficulty that uh, I found with certain people, not everybody, in convincing them that they needed to live a Christian life. When they said, well, I prayed the prayer. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of justification from a Protestant point of view. It's a misunderstanding of grace from a Protestant point of view. And it's obviously a misunderstanding of those things from a Catholic point of view as well. You know, I wonder if it goes back to, it did for me at least, the rule of not meeting any uh, decent or intelligent Catholics and getting all the information about the Catholic Church from those ex-Catholic Christians, those ex-priests. Because you have this on one hand, uh, these people who would tell you, oh, I was a Catholic, I had to go to Mass, and I, I had to go to confession, and I, I had this ceremony called First Communion. And it sounds an awful lot like you're just jumping through hoops, like you're doing works to get to heaven or to become some or, or to, to be Catholic. It, it sounds like you're doing these works. But what I found is when when I began to understand what the church taught about these things, well, well you know, we're, we're encouraged to go to Mass because that's how God built us, to on that seventh day to to rest and to uh to commune with him and to receive the eucharist and and he gave us the thing called confession not that we have to go to perform a work but because there's this incredible grace that comes from confession so i think in my case uh catholicism was seen as a works-based religion because the catholics that i knew didn't know their faith very well to begin with and were, were telling me it was a works-based religion because they didn't know any better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The church, church is a bunch of stuff I have to do. Uh, and uh, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of uh, the Christian faith. Yeah, and you know, what I found is freedom in the Catholic Church, more than I felt I, I had as a non-denominational evangelical, because these, these rules, quote-unquote, these things we have to follow— well, that creates a, a kind of uh, picture of how God wants us to live. The church isn't being petty or um, authoritarian or draconian in setting these rules and boundaries for us. It's, these are, this is a guideline for how we should live the best life that God intended us to live, right? And I didn't have that kind of guidance when I was a, a Bible alone, non-denominational, evangelical, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens, uh, what happened, happened to me, I, I wrote about this in my own version of this article, I think I had six or seven points, you've got nine different points or different rules, what happens if you don't heed these warnings? What, what happens if you begin to meet Catholics that know their faith, that aren't idiots, <laughs> what, what happens if you begin to read uh, from Catholic sources what the Catholic Church actually says? And what, what happens if you begin to read the history of the Church and the Church Fathers and uh, the Great Tradition and begin to look at uh, the sin of schism and why uh, you your Church is no older than, you said, you know 2014 or something, and what happens finally when you begin to realize that Catholics actually read the Bible and that Catholicism in the end isn't actually a works-based religion but promotes grace in this extraordinary way, a physical, tangible grace that often isn't even discussed in uh, the Protestant world? What happens if you don't take this advice that you've given us? What 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 is the... What fate might await you? Well, I, I certainly know of uh, very fine Protestant thinkers who know a great deal about the Catholic Church and know a lot of really great Catholics, and they have not crossed the Tiber as of yet. Uh, so there's no guarantee that if you break all these rules, you're going to find yourself a Catholic. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you start breaking these rules, uh, it will force you to think It'll force you to get in dialogue with the Catholic Church and with Catholic thinkers, uh, either alive or uh, through their books. And once you get into a real dialogue, it opens 
well, the definition of a real dialogue is that you, it opens you up to change. And uh, I think at bare minimum, if you break these rules, you'll have a, a new and greater appreciation for Catholics uh, and for the Catholic Church and what the Catholic Church uh, brings to the table as a culture-shaping, culture-renewing uh, entity. I think also that uh, it can bring about a, a, a a new a, a new ecumenism, not the sort of big organization, top down, lowest common denominator uh, ecumenism that you had in the fifties and sixties and seventies. But uh, well, but Catholic friend of mine goes on vacation to the same lake every year. They have a lake house, and her best friend lives next door. And the best friend, is, I believe, is Baptist. And uh, she and her friend go out in the lake together and row around and pray together and share scripture together. And uh, uh, it is good when brothers and sisters live together in harmony, uh, even if uh, her friend has not come into the Catholic church. So I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And it can bring, it can bring a lot of good in that sense. The other, the other thing that can happen if you start breaking these rules is what happened to me and what happened to you. <laughs> uh, you, you. You break the rules and you say, why am I a Protestant again? And uh, you cannot answer Carl Truman's call to get up every morning and say, yes, I'm going to be a Protestant today. Uh, you sort of say, mm, yeah, I think uh, I'll find my way into the Catholic Church. <laughs> Yikes. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, my podcast. pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Uh, Where can... Thank you for having me. <laughs> No problem. It's been it's been fun. Uh, where can uh, listeners find out more about what you're up to? Well, I write write a regular column at the Stream, and uh, I'm director of distance learning at Wyoming Catholic College, and uh, I have a weekly podcast that I do with our professors called the After Dinner Scholar, uh, so they can look into that and they can look into the. Uh, uh, adult academic outreach that we're doing at Wyoming Catholic College. Uh, Sunday, we start our annual Wyoming School of Catholic Thought. And while it's too late for 2019, 2020 is coming up. And uh, we have a number of uh, online class offerings, uh, including The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, uh, Dante in the Year of Mercy, uh, Classic Roots of, uh, of uh, American Liberty, and uh, people can feel free to be a part of those things. Uh, the, 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 well, the coming here to Lander and being part of the school, uh, there's a fee to that, but everything else is free, and we're delighted to have people participate in that. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for being on this episode, and uh, take care. All right. God bless. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new as well. And I hope you had fun listening to our conversation. It was fun to have the conversation with Dr. Tonkowicz, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it too. Visit thecordialcatholic.com for more information and for the show notes. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter and The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, where there is a vibrant and growing community of people who follow the podcast and my writing as well. Make sure you like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you find it on. We're on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Tuned In Radio, and wherever else fine podcasts are found. Or, in the case of this podcast, even mediocre ones. If you like this show and want to support it financially, you can visit patreon.com slash thecordialcatholic. I appreciate all your prayers, your fasting, and your financial donations. Any financial contributions, any monthly or one-time donations go 100% towards supporting the show, uh, towards podcast hosting fees or equipment upgrades or any other podcast expenses incurred. Thank you so much to those already supporting the show and keeping things running. Please send your feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com and please tell your friends, tell your neighbors, 
others. Tell your knitting circles, your cats, or your dogs about this podcast, and let's keep it growing. I'm loving interacting with my audience, and it's been so much fun so far. We have tons more fascinating guests already booked for all the rest of the summer, and I want to keep things going. Thanks so much, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.